Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are World Wildlife Fund, Wounded Warrior Project, Christian Relief Services. You can find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders at give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Well, in the last few weeks, we've been doing a lot of shows on artificial intelligence and the prospects that it has for a better world, uh, depending on who you listen to and others, uh, other concerns that we need to be mindful of as we build those tools. But today, we're going to transition to something entirely human. And for our guest, very personal. And I'll add, very personal for far too many men in our society. And we're going to dig into why that is and and what's being done about it. You may recall a year or so ago, I had Shawnee Benton Gibson on the podcast, and we talked about the work she's doing with the ARIA Foundation. And that work was created as a result of a horrible tragedy, which was the loss, the death of her daughter during childbirth or shortly after childbirth. And this is something that happens at a disproportionately high rate to women of color. And Shawnee set out to do something about this, to change this likelihood for other women. And what she mentioned to me, in addition to what she was doing, was the support and indeed engagement that she was getting from her son-in-law. And he is here with us today. Omari Maynard is an artist, activist, and educator. He's received his bachelor's degree in marketing from Hampton, MBA and master's degree in sports business management from the University of Central Florida. And he has a master's degree in special education from Long Island University. He's a full-time creative, but before he worked in the field of sports and education for 20 plus years. In 2016, when Shimoni Gibson, his partner, passed away, they had a business called Art Full Living. And it's a lifestyle and event planning business that has an emphasis on artistic expression. When Shimoni passed away in 2019, 
due to this medical malpractice after giving childbirth to her second child. Omari and his mother-in-law, Shawnee, as I mentioned, founded Aria. And they're doing amazing work, which we're going to talk about. But they produced this Aftershock, this film called Aftershock. And it was designed to expose the lack of care that women of color get during pregnancy that leads in many cases and too many cases to problems with their deliveries. And obviously many, too many are passing away as a result of this. And so the film Aftershock documents their plight, but more importantly, later on, it talks about what's being done about this. So Amari is going to talk with me today about the role he's playing with Aria and the work he's trying to do and how he's coping with this, even since 2019. Uh, Amari, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Art. Uh, this is uh, appreciative. Appreciate you. Appreciate what you're doing. Well, Amari, you know the numbers, you know the challenge, and I just think more people need to know about it. Interestingly, though, I think maybe as a result of your work and that of others, we are becoming more aware of some of the disparities associated with the care that black women and brown women get during childbirth and how subpar it is that leads to a lot of these tragedies. What are you seeing now over the last, let's say, four or five years since you began doing this work? Are you seeing more awareness, less awareness? What are you seeing? And and what still remains the extent of the challenge? Like you said, Shamani passed away in 2019 and... When she passed away, I was going through, honestly, you know, it was the most devastating time of my life. I felt grief that I never felt before. I was experiencing loss in a way that I've never had to experience before in terms of losing somebody, even within my family, but somebody who I know, loved, appreciated daily, slept next to daily, and created children with. So I was in a state of confusion, a state of shock, a state of deep, deep sadness and grief, and, you know, was experiencing this or would set the stage to experience a trauma that I've never, and still are dealing with, of course, but never experienced before. So with all that said, after I learned the numbers and heard about how prevalent this is, we don't know the numbers. They say that um, BIPOC women are more likely to pass away due to maternal health issues than any other race or culture in the United States. And, and that number is three to four times more likely. Shimani had a C-section. And in the United States, they say that C-sections that are given, 85% of them are not needed. We can get go deeper into the numbers. It's about 900 to 1,200 women who pass away every year due to the maternal health crisis. These numbers are pretty much back in 19, 2019, 2020. Since the pandemic, during the pandemic and since the pandemic, these numbers are worse. With all that said, after I learned about this, 
And just to preface this as well, I'm talking about maternal mortality, right? Maternal morbidity is a whole nother other crisis, a whole nother issue. Um, the maternal morbidity piece or women who are having these near-death experiences and receiving uh, and creating traumas and grief around these near-death experiences are five to 10 times, 10x the numbers of the mortality piece. Wow. So with all of that said, in my mind, like, it was like, oh yeah, there's definitely a men's group or something out there for men who are experiencing this type of loss and are convening together to create change, to create policy change, to fellowship, to just emote and have conversations with each other about how we're navigating life after losing our partner and also having to either raise a child during this time or experience the loss of the partner and the child during this, this time. And I was quickly, quickly found out that there really wasn't. There were a handful of men who, you know, were pretty much doing their own things and, and figuring out ways to create some energy around the conversation of maternal health. But honestly, there wasn't necessarily a group of men who were pushing this movement forward collectively and together. So so for that reason alone, I was like, oh, man, this, this sucks. But when the, what ended up happening and what I'm deeply grateful for, because it essentially it changed my life and it, it created a space for me and an understanding and a knowing of the need for this was two men specifically got in contact with me. I did not know them. They got in contact with me through social media. They heard about the loss of Shimani and just wanted to essentially send their condolences. These two men also lost their partner due to childbirth, and they were able to answer questions that I had that I would, couldn't really ask anybody else, didn't know how to ask anybody else. And even if I did, the people who were in my circle didn't have the answers to the questions that I needed. So these men, like I didn't know them at all, met them out the blue, but we would sit down and we'd have conversations for hours about life and what was going on and how they were navigating it and things that I can do and stuff like that. And it really helped shift and change my perspective on what my journey was going to be over the the course of my, my life. And of course, at that time, I didn't necessarily know exactly what it was going to be, but I definitely knew that I needed to pay this forward. I needed to provide or just give space to other men who are suffering loss just to know that they have somebody who's willing to hear them out and listen and give them space to emote, a space to have conversation, a space to really navigate, wrestle with their grief outside of themselves. So you started, you got together with Shawnee and you all started ARIA. Obviously, when you started meeting with these men, it wasn't any organization per se, right? It was just you guys getting together periodically. How did the, the whole thing come together? It definitely wasn't anything that was formulated, essentially. Yeah. This is all organic, and it, it just continues to be organic, honestly. <laughs> but when Shawnee and I started ARIA, we knew that we wanted to create something for people who are understanding and suffering loss due to reproductive issues, you know? So ARIA stands for the advancement of reproductive innovation through artistry and healing. Mm -hmm. I myself, you know, I'm an artist. Shamani was an artist as well. Shamani 
she was a dancer. She went to LaGuardia. She got scholarships for college to go and dance. Um, she's also a hairstylist, many things, but a creative at heart and Shawnee as well. You know, Shawnee is rooted in, in the art. She's um, a singer, a writer, a performance artist, a psychodramist. So she does a lot of things that are centered around art and healing as well. So we knew that in that space, we wanted to use art and healing modalities to have conversations around, hard conversations around you know, reproductive justice, social equality, essentially systemic racism. You know, and we wanted to use art as a way to, to be that conduit to allow for an openness around tough conversations and situations. So we established Aria, but in terms of being able to and align with men to help them go through their grief, it, it was a, a very interesting thing because, you know, when it comes to us, when it comes to men, when it comes to Black men specifically, and just men in general, honestly, but BIPOC and Black men are who I focus my attention on being able to have a conversation with somebody that they don't know around a pain that is immeasurable is not an easy task. It's not something that people just openly say, hey, finally, you know, let me tell you all my deep, dark secrets. It wasn't that. But what I didn't know is that, at least for me, when I paint, you know, when I create artwork, it allows me to gives me time to to separate from the world and really go deep and figure out what's happening internally and answer questions that my brain can't process or being out in the world can't really acknowledge. So I started painting when uh, I lost Shimani. And I knew that for me, what painting did and, and conversation did with other men. So I was, again, it was an organic thing, but wanting to provide a resource, one, for men to know that they're covered, as well as making sure that I acknowledge who their partner was and, and the understanding that this loss that they suffered was, of course, a deep loss within their family, but a deep loss within their community, too, and what and who these women are that the community is losing and the repercussions of that. So I started creating paintings of women who passed away due to maternal mortality. And in these paintings, I would do time lapses and record them and talk about who these women were, how many children they had, what they what their goals and aspirations were, what their favorite things to do, what they wanted to do, how they treated their partner, how they were a pillar in their community, how they were aligned with their own families, to be able to create real understanding behind these I mean, nine to twelve hundred women who are passing away. Being able to put these numbers into real time was was important for me. And then after I did that, I would gift paintings to the family as a way to honor them, as a way to help them in their transition and moving through their loss and stuff like that. So, and when I do this, it's not just me doing it without having conversation. Like I'm talking to the families, I'm calling the families up. So we're creating a relationship, essentially. So that was the way that I was able to really be able to have these deep conversations with men. One, honoring their partner, again, asking them permission and letting them know that, you know, I'm not just, it's not a hit it and quit it type of situation. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for us. The way for me to process my loss, but as a way for 
you as well to understand that there, you, this is not a alone thing. This is a, not a by yourself thing. This is a thing that we're going to heal through together and we're going to conquer together. In that, I was able to really be able to create relationships with other men and really get them to kind of understand the importance of their own personal stories, but also to understand the importance of just setting a stage for them to process so that they can then be able to move through their, I don't want to say move on because it's not a move on thing, but move through their loss and figure out what their day-to-day is going to be in a more healthy way so that they can then start thinking of short-term, mid-term, long-term life experiences for themselves and then, of course, for their family. Well, people process grief in different ways. You had your art to help you. You also, though, had your family. By the way, how many children do you have? I didn't ask that question. Uh, Definitely. So I have three children. Three. Okay. So my oldest child is, he's 17 now. And so he he was a child of my previous partner. Mm -hmm. And then I have my two children with Shimani. So my daughter turned seven on February 7th. And my son, he's going to turn five in September. How has it been raising them without Shimani? It's challenging to say the least. It is, I think, why well, I know because of the fact that I'm in this work, right? And I'm, you read my bio and all the great things and it's, it's cool. But long story short, when it comes down to teaching in department education, like it, it wasn't enough. By the time I got my check, I had my two kids in daycare at the time. It was enough to pay for daycare, and then I had to figure it all out on my own. So then essentially, we already had ARIA. I was already creating art. We already had Art for Living as an establishment. So I just took a deep dive into those two things in order to help not just sustain myself and my children, but also to really pour myself into community and the work that I wanted to do. But in that pouring into the community and the work, it is really a reliving of some sorts of my grief and my trauma. In that reliving and having my children, essentially I'm raising them, I don't want to say by myself because that's not true. I'm raising them without a mother and having these conversations that I'm having with you, these conversations happen often with them present. It's a reliving for them as well. So they have a way better understanding of loss, grief, and the cyclical nature of life and death way more than I ever had to even think about. I don't know if it's necessarily helping them or harming them. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it will create a more holistic persons in them. But at the same time, it brings up sadness yeah. for them and for myself. They ask about their mother all the time. Wow. They talk about their mother all the time. They talk about her, their mother like she's here. And she is here She's ever present, but having that physical love, having the physical nurturing, having the opportunity to create family is something that we all are learning how to navigate and experiencing deep grief around. One thing that Shimani talked about, even a couple of days after we had Kari, was the next child that we were going to have. You know, so the understanding that 
they're missing out on not just their mother, but also their siblings is um, something that I think about a lot. And it's something that I don't necessarily think they think about, but subconsciously that they understand. Again, it's a journey. It's a journey that they are a part of, regardless of whether they choose to be or not, because of the fact that this is the journey that I'm on. Because this is the journey that I'm on and because of the great community that I have, the great mother and mother-in-law and, and family that you know, has helped support me and us, it allows for a better understanding of the power of community, the need for community, and the fact that we can be better people through our grief and through our traumas. And the aftershocks or reverberations of those traumas can be the things that allow myself and my children to do great things. Yeah. The aftershock mm-hmm. is what you're dealing with now. The yeah. aftershock. And exactly. Can that shock go from grieving to joy in any way? I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy for me to even suggest the word joy, mm-hmm. but there, what are your moments we, we can't just all always live yeah. with grief. I mean, what are your moments of joy like? What are they yeah, like? Yeah, we are listen, yeah. We live in life. Yeah. Thankfully, like I'm living life, I'm breathing air, I'm physically well, I'm spiritually well, and I think that's mentally well, and that is essentially the joy, right? So me losing my partner really puts in my face that this life, this reality that we all live is very temporary. We got to enjoy it. We have to be 10 toes deep in it while we're here, you know? So there's no time for me to veggie out or Mm -hmm. just be focused on one thing and understand that or not understand that time is passing by. And as I'm a 42 year old man and and I'm a blink twice and I'll be 52 and then I'll blink three times and I'll be 82, God willing. Yeah. With that understanding, we live life to the fullest. I'm a creative and in my art in itself, like understanding the need for knowing how I'm feeling emotionally is so important in in the creating process, you know, and it allows for better work to happen because I am either deep in grief or deep in joy and deep in sadness or deep in happiness. For my children, again, establishing an understanding of community and having this loss be something that allowed for the community to galvanize around us, gave them more aunties and uncles than I've ever had in my life. That's another. And then also, too, from understanding and and losing my partner, it gave me so much more of a spiritual awareness and the need and understanding that we can still communicate as a family. We can still co-parent. She's doing it spiritually. I'm doing it physically. And for that understanding for me, and then also for my children to be able to know that, again, their mother's ever present. They live through us and in us and all around us. So, and that's not just for her, that is for our ancestral lineage. Be able to tap into that and knowing that even if I don't necessarily know my great, great, great grandmother or great, 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 great grandfather, knowing that they're living through me through the things that I do, it's not just me doing them. It's doing them because of the lived and learned experience, generational experiences is so important, especially for us as a Black people, because of the fact that we that's been essentially taken from us. But it, it's never left us. 
And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. There are about 1.5 million charitable organizations in the United States, and there are about 100,000 new charities that are created each year. So as a result, uh, from time to time, you're going to be solicited by organizations that are relatively new, been around less than a year, and you're not going to have a track record to check them out. So what do you do? First thing I would recommend is that you check with the charity registration office in your particular state, which is usually part of the Attorney General's office or the Secretary of State's office, to see if that organization has registered to solicit. About 40 of the 50 states require that for charities that are going to be uh, doing fundraising appeals. The next thing I'd say is that all organizations, even if they're new, are going to have a website. And on that website, you're going to see a description of what their plans are. What are their activities that they're asking for support? And that should be clear. If you don't have a good description there, if it's vague, that's a red flag. The other thing is, I would say, board oversight. Of course, that's very important, even for a brand new organization. So one of the things you can do is when you check out the organization's website, Who's on the board of that particular charity? What professional affiliations do they have? Do they have the right background and experience based on that to help lead the organization? You can also look at the charity's website to see if they have some type of a budget plan. In other words, how much money are they planning to raise? And do they have a preliminary expenditure plan about how they uh, see they're going to be using that money? And a well-managed charity is going to have some type of financial budget available, even if they're relatively new. And the last thing I'll say is watch out about emergency appeals. I mean, if the charity wants your money right away, they're going to welcome it tomorrow just as much. And take a step back to find out whether this is the organization you want to support so you can make an informed giving decision. There are lots of other charities out there if for any reason you are uncomfortable in not getting enough information on the one that's asked you for a donation. Amari, I've always sensed that we have a certain power in us that stems from our ancestors. Those we don't know, those we'll never know, but especially for the African diaspora living here in the United States, we are people who survived. We are, we are the fruit of the survivors mm -hmm. of a whole lot of trauma. Definitely. Over centuries, right? We are the fruit of that trauma. And there must be something special about us to be here today. There's a whole lot of folk who didn't make it, but we did. And so our ancestors did. And I just think that we who are survivors of this would do well to understand the power that we possess as a result of all that that came before us. And it, it doesn't mean that we don't have challenges today because we do. But it is also true that if they could overcome what they did to produce us, then there's nothing that we can't overcome if we choose to.
and we can't do it alone. We do it with the support and the community that you seem to be building with, with the ARIA Foundation and with these men who are also now survivors. And together, you find a way forward. I just want to ask you, you mentioned the organic nature of what you're doing with the men. But is there more of a, a programmed sort of work that you're doing here? I mean, how is it structured? What do you hope to achieve when you get together? Are these gatherings regular? What, what is the program behind ARIA? I appreciate the question. And you bringing it back to men and, and us establishing this, this brotherhood. So like I said earlier, you know, it started out with just like two men reaching out to me through, via IG and then me reaching out to another brother. And that brother ended up being Bruce McIntyre, who was also a part of the Aftershock film. When I started creating the artwork is when I started meeting more men and really having conversations with more men. And I will always say this, Shawnee has been in this reproductive justice space for decades, even way before Shamani passed. She was specifically focused on the darker side of maternal health. While Shamani was even here, we did artwork for an engagement she had called Mother Wit, which is having conversations around miscarriages, stillbirth, released births, things of that nature. So I'm saying all of this to say that the community for me was set when I suffered when Shamani passed. So we were already we were already going to therapy. We were already going to group therapy. And then I started seeing the same therapist after she passed. Um, Shawnee's best friend is a grief counselor. And after my loss, you know, I was going to therapy. I was seeing Reverend Shen, who's a grief counselor. And then I had midwives, doulas, community in the space to provide all the things I need lactation consultants, diapers, anything that you could think. I didn't buy diapers, honestly, for about a year and a half. Wow. And I'm saying all of this to say that in my worst possible situation, I was kind of given the best possible hand in having the supports that I needed. And in those conversations that I would have with men, after giving them these paintings, I quickly realized like they don't even know what's available to them. They don't even know how to access, even if they didn't know. And that's kind of when the, we got to create programs. We got to figure this out to be able to establish a safety net for men who have suffered loss so that they know where to go, but also too, to be proactive and really bring it back to, we need to focus on our own growth as men to be able to have these conversations, to be able to be the support systems that we need for ourselves first and then for our family and then community. So that's essentially how the Luxor Collective got established. And the Luxor Collective, what we do is we meet every other Thursday from 7.30 to 9 p.m. And essentially, I just open up space for men to have conversations around whatever topic that we choose. But the space is created for men who have suffered loss within the healthcare system, whether it be due to maternal mortality or losing their partner to cancer or maybe losing their child to 
stillbirth or infant crib death or whatever. But that kind of quickly started to shift into engaging with men who honestly deal with the grief and the trauma of just being Black in America. But understanding that this is, the foundation of this is for maternal health and is created because and through Shamani. With that, we started just fellowshipping and opening up space. And for me, like there's a lot of spaces that are like this. This is not something that's necessarily new and we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. But because this, the reason why this space is special is because my therapist comes every other week. My grief counselor comes every other week. We have men who have built boys' programs and men's programs who are st- or established programs who come every other week. You know, we have men in a lot of different spaces that will be able to provide support outside of just holding space, right? So if a conversation goes way left or way right and I don't know what to do, there's somebody in there who are professionals who understand what to do and are able to provide services outside of this space if needed. That's the Luxor Collective. And it's been, it happened organically. We kind of created a system around it and it's been flourishing, honestly. And I'm just super grateful for the men who take their time out to be even be in this space and understanding not just the need to do it, but for themselves and the people who are here, but understanding that this is kind of the future and where we need to really start thinking as Black men and, and BIPOC men, and just even men in general, like really needing to be focused on intergenerational conversations with youth, with men who are of age and then elders, so that we can start filling gaps. Because we don't have to, this is not a guessing game. It doesn't have to be a guessing game unless you are able to create community around and create a placeholder for people to come and then establish these type of conversations. It only begets growth. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think about your your Luxor Collective, and I hope that it's not growing because that would be an indication that maybe the bigger problem is being addressed and so that there are fewer men who need this. Mm-hmm. But it's not likely that that's the case. I'm just curious from your perspective and knowing about that, you know, are we seeing more men come to you? And more importantly, there is, I guess, obviously a very multi-generational aspect to this. Mm -hmm. You're in your early forties. I suspect there are some men who come to you in their thirties and younger, and maybe there's some some men in their 50s and 60s who are still dealing with this in some way, you know, even though their kids are grown up and maybe having children of their own, or maybe their grandparents who lost a daughter and feel that stress, that pain. So I don't know what you're, what you're seeing there, but I just thought I'd ask you about that. I mean, that's essentially the case. Thankfully, because of Aftershock, because of the film, it's allowed me to be able to go to different parts of the country and talk about my experience, talk about the film, talk about what we're doing. And and in that, I've been meeting. I'm based in Brooklyn. When we meet, this is a virtual group that we have. Honestly, I want to say maybe Mm -hmm. there's a handful of people who are actually from New York. I've got people from California, from New Mexico, from Texas, Florida, Atlanta, like all over. 
And I say that to say that this is obviously it's a national issue, but even bigger than that, this is a, a global issue. Anywhere where there are black and brown people, we are essentially the lowest in terms of getting the care that we need. It's growing. Of course, we don't want that to be the case, but you know, things get worse before they get better. But knowing that men want to heal and understand the importance of it, regardless of age, is important. And for me, I have a brother in our group, his name is Baba J, who has his own men's foundation and does a lot of work around maternal health and reproductive justice, but he also lost his daughter to suicide. In those instances, this is not necessarily in the healthcare's perspective, but it is an understanding losing somebody suddenly and the processes that you go through initially in five years and 10 years and 20 and 30 years later, and him being able to impart a certain wisdom that we don't have, but we definitely need is essential, man. It's essential and it's priceless because with him and then with other men who are in the group, they are essentially creating an understanding for us of knowing that this path that we're walking on, which was very dark and... <laughs> didn't know how to navigate. They're establishing some light and allowing for space to us to be able to navigate however we need, but with the help of them. And I pray that five, 10, 20 years that we don't even need this type of platform. We won't even need Luxor. But the reality is, is that if you are alive, you will experience death. And if you are Black or marginalized, you will experience trauma. So until we start fixing those things and really taking hard looks and being intentional around how we are establishing our own until we can redirect and, and push against theirs so that they can create a holistic experience for all people. We're going to be here. Let me ask you, I know that you're doing good work here. I just wonder, what do you need? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if people are listening and they want to help, what do you need? How do we support ARIA. Yeah, I appreciate that. For us, thankfully, like I said, with the film and with us having a understanding over even past the four years that ARIA has pretty much been established of what the issues are, we have been able to move in a move pretty quickly over these last two years. So ARIA has been a 501c3 for about two years now. Through our events, through our programmings, we're able to touch and feel a lot of people within our own community, but nationally. But with that said, the infrastructure is where we're really kind of, I don't want to say faltering, but that's where the biggest need is right now. We have programs, we're creating curriculum, we're doing events, and our main focus is, is when we're doing these events and when we're establishing this program is that we try to keep it, or not even try, because it's been free. We want to maintain that. But essentially what ends up happening is that outside of sponsorship, it ends up coming out of our pocket. So we need sponsors. We need donors. We need people who understand what the issues are, understand the importance of art and the understand the, understanding the importance of art and not just art, but art and engagement and connected to programming and things that will allow for growth to happen is essential. So essentially, like I said, the foundation is there. We're doing our thing, but we definitely need funding. We need funding and then we need like-minded people who are able to 
scale what we're doing. Because like I said, we're based in Brooklyn and we do a lot of work nationally, but we also would love to have based programs in places where the maternal health crisis is off the charts, like Texas, like Atlanta, like Florida, DC. These are places where there's a dense population of Black people. And if there are a dense population of Black people, there are a dense population of marginalized people who need these services. That's where we really need the most help in is scaling and then being able to get money in order for us to provide the programming, the events and the curriculum that we that we know the community needs. Great. Well, I'm glad you let us know. I'm hopeful that there are people who hear this who are in a position to help and will do that. And and so you would go to your website or how would how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, most definitely. So our website is thearyafoundation.org. You can reach us there. We have all our information there. All our social media platforms are, are connected to that. Uh, if you're on Instagram, it's the Aria Foundation. If you're on Facebook, it's the same thing, the Aria Foundation. These are all spaces and places where you can, can catch us. And then also, too, for personal work. If you're interested in any artwork, I have my own website. It's omarimaynard.com. Great. My Instagram platform is m underscore u underscore z. Well, I want to just say, I appreciate this candid assessment of where you are with Aria. It's still relatively new. It's doing some good work, but you know that you're not where you want to be or where you need to be right now. And you're asking for help to get there. I so appreciate that fresh and honest assessment Mm -hmm. because a lot of times people will say, we're the greatest thing. We're all set. Just give us more money and we'll be good. Well, you're just saying this is where we are. Mm. We're going to get better. We're going to do more. We need to do more. We need some help. Definitely. And I hope that some foundations out there or some individuals out there or maybe some companies out there We'll take a look at this. Not everything happens from the standpoint of very large organizations. Sometimes we need to invest in fledgling or things that are just getting started or shortly been birthed, so to speak, like your organization to help them grow because they've tapped into something that needs to be supported. And you've tapped into something, you've tapped into men who are in a position to either go up or down. Because I can't imagine that we aren't losing men too as a result of this. We're not losing them physically, maybe some physically. Maybe we're losing some emotionally. They're not even in a position to take care of their children because they're so distraught or so affected by this. We need to help them. They're here with responsibilities. We need to help them. And their situation didn't occur because of anything they've done. They're not guilty of anything. So we need to find ways to help them. And I hope that there are people who are listening who will just say, you know, I got some money to give. I got some time to give. I got some expertise to give. I want to support what's going on here because I I can see the bigger picture. I can see the compassion, I can see the dedication, and I can see the focus that was born out of this trauma that you went through 
and the other men went through. And now we, we almost owe it to you, the opportunity to help us. Because frankly, what happens to these children if you aren't the men that you need to be to raise them? They become a problem potentially for our society. We don't want that. We want them to grow up as whole as they can be so that they can go on and live fruitful and productive lives. And they need you to be whole in order to do that. And this is what your your foundation is doing. So let's let's get out there and let's support them. And I just wanted to to hold that up for anybody who's listening. We're going to have to end, end the podcast here and interview here, but I just want to thank you for taking the time to join the show and tell us your story. First of all, as I said, I'd heard it somewhat from Shawnee when I interviewed her, but I wanted to talk to you directly and hear your story from you and what you're experiencing so that everyone else could hear that. And I think we have, none of us will ever know the pain and to some extent suffering that you've gone through. But I think you've also let us know that there is joy and that there is purpose that comes from that, that you're living through. And, and I wanted to just thank you for, for what you've become. And I want to commend you for what you've become as a result of this. I appreciate that. So to all of our listeners, help if you can. And if you're listening for the first time, this is a weekly show, The Heart of Giving podcast. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And we hope that you'll listen every Tuesday when we come out to a new episode. And therefore, we hope we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening. You've just listened to The Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.